0: Hi, Sarah. Um, I think you're not wearing your polo neck jumper. Mm. Oh, you mean my my turtleneck, right? (laughs) Right. Well,
1: I mean, it's not that cold, Alison, so no. (laughs)
0: Well, Uh, uh, hang on, hang on. You haven't been following the news. Our politicians are all wrapping themselves up. Ah, right. Yeah. The economy minister, Bruno Le Maire, announced on Twitter that he will no longer be wearing, he's no longer wearing shirts and ties, but a polo neck instead. And he'll be doing that all winter. He's encouraging us all to do the same as, of course, we're beginning to lower our heating to save energy. Right, right. This is all linked to to
1: the gas crisis, uh, mm-hmm. Russia cutting off gas to, to France and Europe because of the Ukraine war. It's true, Prime Minister... Elisabeth Bon has been showing up to meetings sporting some ski jackets, not not too unstylish. No, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: not, not your cup of tea. <laughs> uh, maybe not. The thing is that she's been keeping them on yeah. throughout the it's meeting, true. right? It's true, yeah. And Emmanuel Macron, the president himself, has been seen wearing black polo necks. Well, it's nothing completely new because he likes, you know, that's his casual wear of mm. choice, but he's been doing it more recently. Even if temperatures are not, well, they're not that cold, they're above seasonal average. sure. Um, So basically all these politicians are trying to get one up on each other and show that they're doing their bit, you know, as they ask us all to save energy. Uh, One lawmaker announced proudly that he and his wife are no longer using their clothes dryer, their tumble dryer. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's not that complicated to hang out your clothes, he said in an interview, as if he was sort of discovering this weird thing. Right, right. Which is, you know, given this is how
1: most French people mm. dry their clothes. Clothes dryers are not really a thing here. Wow, what a hero yeah, for yeah. going the dryer. <laughs>
0: yeah, and this, of course, has all been lambasted on social media. The government's being accused of being very paternalistic. Your mum tells you to wrap up when it's cold, not your finance minister, uh, one person tweeted. And the thing is, well, it is a serious issue, right? Gas, yeah. energy shortages, and price increases mean that we do need to start saving energy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Electricity. Comes companies, for example, have been saying they'll give bonuses to to people who reduce their their usage
0: this winter. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, maybe wearing a jumper and slippers at home will be part of the solution, Um, but will we be inspired by our Members of Parliament? I'm not sure about
1: that. Yeah, at least we get a laugh out of it. (laughs) We
0: do. I'm always happy to have a laugh.
1: (laughs) So France has a reputation for supporting new parents, with fully paid maternity leave for 16 weeks, six weeks before the birth of the baby, and ten weeks after.
0: And since last year, uh, there's also 28 days of paternity leave.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it turns out that it doesn't apply to everyone. The Labour Code guarantees you to take time off, even insists on it, but not if you're a Member of Parliament.
2: Turns out you have no maternity leave when you are an MP because it's an appointment and not a job. You can stop when you want and start again when you want, but when you are gone, you cannot be replaced by your deputy. So
1: no replacement means no vote. That's Mathilde Inye. She's a recently elected member of the National Assembly who's pregnant with Mm -hmm. her first child. She's due this month, actually. She works on her family farm, growing apples and potatoes. And and normally, she would have been off on official maternity leave at this point. But instead, she's been making it up as
3: she goes. J'ai la chance d'avoir une grossesse qui se passe plutôt bien. I'm lucky that the pregnancy is
2: going well, so I'm taking my time before stopping. I try to organise my schedule so that I can be present, but not overdoing it. I'm finding a balance. I'm no longer going to Paris, I'm not making long trips, and I'm staying in my district. So I cannot vote. There is no way to have someone vote for me.
1: So I wanted to talk to Inye because she introduced a bill, a constitutional amendment, actually, that would allow MPs to be replaced by their deputies when they're out on maternity leave.
0: And she's one of four MPs currently pregnant that that we know of, Mm -hmm. including Aurore Berger. She's the president of Emmanuel Macron's group in the National Assembly. Yeah. And so the way things are now, MPs have deputies. They're called suppléants.
1: And they campaigned together, but their only role after the election is to step in if the lawmaker gets appointed to the government and vacates the seat, or if they die. (laughs) So Inyé campaigned with her deputy, Marc Martin, when she was pregnant, which led to many questions from constituents, you know, the people she was going to be representing in Parliament.
2: There were many questions about what was going to happen. Would my deputy replace me? The answer is no. People who elected me worried, saying the seat would be empty, and for how long. It's true that it makes a deficit in terms of democracy.
0: Especially in the current parliament, where no one party has a clear majority, and so every vote counts. Yeah, exactly. Um, This
1: isn't a revolutionary idea. Other countries in Europe, Belgium, Finland, for example, do allow for MPs to be replaced when they take parental leave. Here in France, Inye would like to see a broader debate over the role of the deputies, that they could step in to replace female MPs on maternity leave, also for all parents to take time off,
3: or even those on long-term sick leave. Mm -hmm. We campaign as a pair.
2: People vote for two of us really, and some will even vote more for the deputy because they know them. And once the election is done, the deputy loses their entire role. So today in the district, I try to work with my deputy so he can represent me. But we have to balance with his schedule because he has a job. But this is a bigger issue to rethink. I think there are really interesting questions about making a real duo to work on reports or preparing bills. Or, what if we each went every other week to Parliament? The allowance could easily be split in
3: two. So, could making the position more part
1: time encourage more people to enter politics? Maybe. 90 MPs signed on to this constitutional amendment, uh, Inge's entire party, and, and she thinks she can pull in more.
0: Is anyone opposing this, Sarah? I mean, it seems like it would benefit everyone to be able to have absent MPs replaced.
1: Yeah, so she says she's encountered a bit of kind of circumspect resistance. Some of those who say that a constitutional amendment really is just too complex. But overall, you're right. There are very few good arguments against this. Inedo though, is under no illusions that there will be a constitutional amendment anytime soon, but she says things do have to change.
3: Si l'Assemblée Nationale...
2: As the National Assembly gets younger and more female, these questions will always come up. Even if the process is long and maybe a bit complicated, I think we will necessarily have to change things at some point because today it's an organisation that was thought up by men for
3: men. For now,
1: she's making modifications to her schedule, taking it easy and anticipating what might happen after
0: the baby's born. You remember Rashida Dati, the former justice minister from 2007 to 2009. She famously was back at work just five days after giving birth.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she Mm. got a lot of flack for it but then she also felt like She had no choice. I mean, Justice Minister, it's a a big role. Inye would like to take the standard 10 weeks of postpartum maternity leave, though if there's an important vote, she could make a round trip to Paris in a day. Of course, that might be difficult. I mean, leaving the newborn or even traveling
3: with the baby. Est-ce que on est obligé, uh, en tant que femme ou en tant que parent
2: Are you required as a woman or as a parent because you have a baby and you're elected official to stop at the last minute? You do need to take the time to welcome your child serenely. If I cannot be there for ten weeks after the birth, unfortunately, my seat will be empty and I won't be there. And that is what is unfortunate. It puts more pressure on you.
3: Ça met aussi une pression quand même supplémentaire, en fait.
1: For now, Inya's proposal is just that, not sure it will be picked up by Parliament, which is focused on other things these days.
4: All right, here we go. Turn on the water here, push
1: the button. Put so it like my bottle. Water's coming out of this dome where there are these dolphins on top. and the dome, it's held up by four ladies in robes. They're holding the domes up on their heads. It's very ornate. And there's a little sign that says, This fountain is supplied by treated water from the Seine and the Marne rivers. There you go. Alison, so so you know these fountains.
0: I do. The dolphins, the women. These mm. are Wallace fountains yeah. uh, made out of cast iron. They're all over Paris. Most of them are uh, bottle green.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they turn 150 years old this year. The first one was installed in northern Paris in 1872 offering clean drinking water. It was one of 50 designed and financed by Sir Richard Wallace. Richard Wallace. Mm. He doesn't sound very French. Nope, he's not French. He's actually <laughs> the illegitimate son of a British aristocrat but he was educated in Paris. Wallace was born in 1818. He died in 1890 and buried in the Père Lachaise Cemetery and our resident expert on that cemetery is none other than our colleague Laura-Angela Bagnetto, who's been on the podcast before.
5: Sir Richard Wallace was a generous rock. Star.
1: So, Laura-Angela joined me for a drink from the Wallace Fountain in Belleville in northern Paris, not far from Père Lachaise, to talk about Wallace and his contributions to Paris. Laura-Angela, can you introduce us to Sir Richard Wallace?
5: So, he was uh, the Ill- illegitimate son of a British ar- aristocrat. He was um, raised and stayed in Paris almost his whole life, even though he was British. Um, and he was here during the time when we had the Franco-Prussian War, and then after that, a a small civil war called the Commune. And so, during the Franco-Prussian War, this is 1870, 1871, he stayed in Paris? Yes, he did, which was a really big deal because in December 1870 to January 1871, there was the Siege of Paris. Everybody fled, the bourgeoisie, the wealthy, so, so someone of his stature and his means could flee everybody left. I'm sure all his friends left. So the fact that, that he stayed is a really big deal because he actually saw the suffering. He didn't read about it. Um, you know, the poor were pretty much hated by the bourgeoisie and totally badly characterized in in, in in the media. And so he actually saw it firsthand and that's why he wanted to do something about it. He contributed what would now be millions of euros to help these people because he actually saw what they had suffered while others didn't really care and had left.
1: So so he stays in Paris during the siege, then there's the commune that comes, there's a civil war. Paris is not looking very good after all this.
5: No, not at all. And the thing is, is that part of this anger that everyone had fled and abandoned them he saw how they suffered and wanted to help. So this is, he came into lots of money when his uh, father died in 1870. So right around the same time as all this. Oh yes. And so he thought, what can I do to use this money? We don't know exactly how he thought, but we know he was quite generous. And not only did he give, you know, firewood, water, and food uh, during the siege and the commune, but then he also created these lovely fountains so
1: yeah so why why did he do
5: that how did that come about so people didn't have access to water there was no potable water a lot of people got it from the Seine, which was a little bit gross people were drinking a lot of wine so he
1: decided you know what uh we need to give these people some water so so what? He, he says, okay, we're going to install fountains, but like what? He's just a private individual. How does he go about doing this? Well,
5: he was really interested in art. He had a huge art collection, which is now the Wallace Collection that's now in London, and basically he designed this actual fountain here. He roughly designed it, and then he gave it to a sculptor who was able to do it. His original donation was for 50 fountains, but I now believe there's over 100. So like functional public art. Yes, and, and that you get free water
1: most of the year. So it's connected to the drinking water system. I guess the city connected it, he donated his ideas and I
5: guess funded. Exactly, he funded it as, as well and his ideas and that was really important because people here actually had access to water which they didn't before because they didn't even have it in their homes.
1: So so the reason why we're talking to you about Sir Richard Wallace is because you have a project where you're exploring tombs in the Péleches Cemetery where Richard Wallace is buried. Tell us a little bit about his tomb there.
5: It's gorgeous. It's absolutely massive. It's one of the largest tombs that is in Père Lachaise. It befits someone who was so generous, really. And people are always asking in the cemetery, where is his tomb? There's no fountain on his tomb. There is no fountain, unfortunately. I wish there was. That would be, that would be a perfect ode to him.
1: But it's, it's quite similar to the style. So there are four types of Wallace Fountains around Paris today. Sir Richard Wallace designed the first two. The most famous is the tall one, with the four maidens and dolphins, and were painted dark green to, to blend in with the landscape. But Recently, several have been repainted, including the one I was at with Laura Angela. It was bright blue. <laughs> um, these are historical objects, but also very useful. Water flows from March to mid-October.
0: Yeah, so that, that really came into its own uh, during heat waves mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, droughts. And it's very useful for rough sleepers, for example, to get drinking water.
1: Yeah, and during COVID, some people even put soap next to them. Mm.
0: So the spirit of Sir Wallace clearly lives on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks there to Laura Angela Bagnetto who's working on a book about the extraordinary people buried in Paris's Père Lachaise Cemetery, including Sir Richard Wallace.
0: Sarah, cast your mind back to lockdown in March, April 2020. Mm, that's a <laughs> wow. bit sad,
1: but
5: yes, okay. Sorry.
0: Uh, do you remember, though, seeing people sometimes leaning out of windows or standing on their balconies singing?
1: Yeah, Yeah. actually, yeah. There was a building behind mine where people literally every evening would start singing, Oh we, oh we matelo navire, this sort of kid song about um, sailors. I mean, it was... Uh, Every single
0: night. (laughs) Yeah, cute, but Mm, as you say, every single night a little too much. Well, sometimes uh, people sang opera, Ah. especially in Italy, where opera is still a popular art form. Mm. And then once lockdown was lifted in May 2020, some opera singers and musicians here in France started performing bits of opera on the streets. They were part of a collective called CALMS, uh, doing outreach work in the community.
1: I guess theatres were closed, so they had no choice. They had to perform outside.
0: Yeah, it's true. They were Mm -hmm. very keen to to get back doing what they love. But they also wanted to take opera in particular, which is often seen as rather elitist, back to its more popular roots and bring it to a much wider audience. So they launched a project called Opera Déconfiné or Deconfined Opera, uh, if you like, which has continued beyond the COVID uh, confinements. Basically, for two months during the summer, uh, more than 30 professional singers performed mini concerts for free, once a week, in, often in working-class areas of cities like Marseille, Aix-en-Provence, but also here in Paris. And they choose their repertoires, if you like, based on themes like fraternity, sexual violence, jealousy, madness, all the things that crop up regularly in opera. Mm. So there's a social side to this as well, and they then encourage discussion with the audience. The summer season is just winding up here in Paris, but I caught a session last week it's rare to, to hear live opera on the streets, and it got me thinking, why isn't there more?
6: Bonjour. Bonjour à toutes et à tous. Il est 15h30. C'est l'heure d'Opéra Déconfiné. Ouvrez vos fenêtres.
0: Open your windows, you're at the opera, shouts soprano Nadej Maden, the coordinator of Opéra Déconfiné in Paris. We're in a courtyard at the foot of a large tenement block in the east of Paris, a stone's throw from the ring road. It's a no-frills set-up, an electric keyboard and two opera singers. No costumes, no mics. Suir is performing the role of Gilda with Christian Paul as her father Rigoletto in an extract from Verdi's Rigoletto. She enjoys the challenge.
3: We just had like 15 minutes rehearsal and I'm lucky because Christian has sung uh, Rigoletto a lot so it's exciting to sing for the first time for me this duet but with someone who has sung Rigoletto a lot it's perfect. We don't have a mic we are singing uh, really like opera with no amplification at all and it's different because uh, we are just singing and we see who basically is walking around and is, is going to either just stop by to discover opera or open their windows. And I think it's quite charming because uh, also, you know, Paris, it's a romantic city, right? So singing opera in the, in the Parisian streets, I think it's quite appropriate.
0: And there's also a strong emphasis on the social function music can have says Nadej Medenne.
6: We want to go wherever people live they don't have to come to the opera, the opera comes to them, and that's the point. I know that some people think they don't belong to opera, it's not their place, and they wouldn't feel at ease to go there because they would think that people would look at them and it won't be, you know, pleasant. And they don't know it, so they have a lot of a false idea. I would say, about it.
0: In previous concerts, they've performed Carmen, Così fan tutte, West Side Story, tales of women trying to break away and make their own choices in life. Today's theme is parents and children on anger issues, with excerpts from Verdi's Rigoletto, Rossini's Guillaume Tell and Puccini's Gianni Sicci.
4: Le rapport aujourd'hui, c'est le rapport de père et sa fille relations between father and daughter. They're not always gentle. There's also violence. Women come off badly in opera. It's written by men, you know, so women are often mistreated. And that reflects what's happening sometimes in real life. But we try and bring joy too because people who've suffered don't just want sad stuff.
0: tone, Christian Paul measures an imposing 1m96 and throws himself into the role of Rigoletto, the overprotective father who will inadvertently bring about the death of his daughter. Unlike Anne Marine, who was classically trained as a teenager, Christian took to opera later in life, age 33. Before that, he was a construction engineer in Toulouse.
4: Toulouse, Toulouse, is a city of opera. Toulouse is a city of opera. I grew up hearing people singing and humming in the streets. And one day we were renovating the roof of the Capitol Opera House in Toulouse, and I hollered up to the workers because they were eight metres high up and weren't wearing harnesses. The opera staff came out to see who this big voice belonged to. You should be singing operetta at the very least, they said. There's a shortage of male voices. And then one day I went to see Rigoletto and said to myself, I was made for that role. And one day I voir Rigoletto and said, that's the role of my life.
0: Bringing opera to new audiences is a great idea. A couple of windows are open and a woman on the third floor is leaning out with her eyes closed, clearly in a state of reverie. Few people, though, have come down to listen. But among those that have, three women are sitting on the steps next to the gate. We've been coming every Wednesday since it started, says Colette. It keeps us busy. I'm not a big fan of opera, but when there's music down here, well, it's respectful to come and listen, isn't it? I've seen it on the TV, but it's the first time live. It's outside, it's free, and we make the most of it, says Dolores. We'll miss it when it's gone. There were chanteurs in the rues People used to sing in the streets, didn't they? says Nadine, a retired receptionist. So it certainly doesn't bother me. On the contrary, I've got opera records, well, operetta at least. First Wednesday was West Side Story. I loved it. I've never been to the opera. Back then, girls like me, well, you know, we couldn't go. I'd like to have been a singer. When I was little, I used to put cherry stones in my mouth and sing in front of the mirror. Other residents come and go and pass by the singers without stopping. It's not the kind of captive audience these professional opera singers are used to, but Anne-Marie Nspierre doesn't mind.
3: I think that if even one person walks by and they're like, oh, wow, I like this, what is it, it's beautiful... I'm fine with it. Like I get to, to sing for many people in other occasions, right? So I think here's not necessarily the point. It's more to show how opera is accessible.
4: It doesn't bother me. Those people may be shy and reserved, but they heard something. What bothers me more are cars, vans, and scooters. Let's go to start. Rigoletto.
0: The mini concert lasts 20 minutes and then there's time for people to ask questions. Sometimes this takes off, says Nadej Meden. We're creating
6: a relationship with people because we're coming for eight weeks in the same place, so people get to know us and get to talk to us, and this is really fabulous.
0: But today, for whatever reason, people aren't so chatty. <laughs> The team packs up the piano and the little sound system into a box attached to Nadezh's bike, and she pedals off to the next venue, just a 10 minute walk away. <laughs> this time, they're performing on the streets. Sadly, it starts to drizzle, but nothing can dampen the troubadours' spirits. <laughs> It's 5pm and kids are starting to come out of school. A group of teenagers stop and listen, but they don't come too near. Some younger ones do, though, and they're literally mesmerised. I like it, says this girl. It's very good. They come every Wednesday, they say. It's the fourth time I've come, says one of the girls. We have our basketball class. And then we come here to watch them. Their voices are quite high. One of the mothers, Asma, says she listens to opera at home, though she's never been to a live performance. I'm excited today to uh, hear such a lovely voice. Sometimes it happens that I
3: uh, listen to opera songs like this, but uh, we are lucky to have it in here, next door. (laughs) In the street, yeah, just
0: yeah, picking up uh, the children from the school and going through this lovely
3: music show. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I couldn't follow up all the story, but it's really emotional.
0: That's great, says Nadej Maden, as two of the girls let themselves go and start vocalising a bit. Getting kids interested is what the team is aiming for, but Christian Paul says there's a huge amount of work to be done in France to make opera more a part of daily life. Things are very different in Germany and Austria, where he spends much of his
4: time. It does us good to come back here, back to the fundamentals, and to plant a seed here and there, because in France we don't talk about opera that much. It's a catastrophe. I lived in Berlin for ten years, and believe me, it's different there. And when I sing in Austria, I can't count the number of times a man in the street has tapped me on the shoulder the day after a concert and said, "That was wonderful," and then just walks away. It's part of a culture that we don't have in France because we don't dare embrace it. We're afraid, but we've got to go for it. Voilà.
0: So that's it for Spotlight on France. This episode was mixed by Vincent Porat. If you have any comments about the episode or if you want to get in touch with us
1: generally, just send us an email, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We'd love
0: to hear from you. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We're a production of Radio France International and you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, October the 20th. Bye, Allison. Bye-bye, Sarah.